0: The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How are you, friend? Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. It's a long-awaited one. It is our pleasure to present the interview with one of the most legendary bassists of all time, Leland Sklar. He's a touring and session-based guitarist who has toured and recorded with some of the most iconic recording artists of all time. James Taylor, Carol King, Jackson Brown, but also Crosby, Stills & Nash, Ray Charles, Hall & Oates, George Strait, Dolly Parton, and so on and so forth. This is astounding. Leland Sklar has contributed to over 2,000 albums as a session musician. Think about that how many albums this man has played on. This interview was recorded at a Ritz-Carlton hotel during the James Taylor and Carol King Troubadour reunion tour back in June 2010. If you have any reaction to this interview, by all means, let me know what you think. And if you like the interview, be sure to share it. Enjoy. It was a few months back we welcomed the one and only Russ Kunkel on
1: our program. And he said, keep your eyes peeled. There's an upcoming tour, the Troubadour reunion tour with James Taylor and Carol King. Our special guest on this episode is a legendary bass player. It is with great pleasure. We welcome our special guest, one of the world's foremost bass players, Leland Sklar. Thanks so much for making the time. I am
2: thrilled to be here. I assure you, this is very cool. I'm I'm happy to be back in Atlanta and... uh, Excited about the show tonight. This is a magical tour that we're on. In the words of Nathan Johnson, <laughs> who is Leland Sklar? He's still searching out his special purpose. <laughs> <laughs> a, yeah, just a, just a, a, a musician from L.A. that feels lucky to be gainfully employed. It, the, the interesting thing about this whole adventure that we're having is to look around stage and be staring at guys I was looking at 40 years ago. And everybody's still at the top of their game. It's not like some old bunch of farts that drag themselves out from the back of the hardware store where they've been for the past 20 years. But Cooch and Russ and myself and James and Carol are just like it's as powerful as ever. And it's, it's a deep experience. I'm loving this. What music did you hear around the house growing up? Um, my folks, a lot of classical. My, my folks were very classically driven, but a lot of... George Shearing, the high lows, a lot of contemporary jazz of, of the period because I grew up in the 50s. I aged in the 50s. I never grew up, but that's a, I'll, I'll, I'll draw that delineation here. There was a lot of music in the house. My folks weren't musicians. My mom plunked around on the piano a little bit, and my dad was, you know, could, could honk a few notes on a saxophone. But uh, for the most part, they were more appreciative of music than participants in it, uh, it was pretty eclectic in the house. Can you remember your
1: personal favorites?
2: I sort of absorbed all of it. it. It really wasn't until probably around the time I went into junior high school that I had a friend of mine and he turned me on to R&B. And I was really I wasn't like a I wasn't a Beatles fan. I mean, I, I wasn't a, a big Elvis fan or any of that or or that period. I was really into like Joe Tex and James Brown and, and the Righteous Brothers and, and groups like that. That's really kind of where I cut my teeth as a player. And it really wasn't until the Beatles came along that I really got more rock oriented. And then the English invasion, I was completely consumed with with everything from Zeppelin to 10 years after to Jimi Hendrix and Cream and all the stuff that came with that. But as a child growing up, it was, I was more classically oriented. All my training as a musician was classical training. Uh, I started as a pianist, and uh, when I was five, I was studying um, classical uh, piano. That really kind of consumed my childhood uh, rather than anything rock or pop or anything oriented. It was pretty, So I would have to say classical. Tell us about Mr. Ted Lynn. I mean, I don't think if, if it wasn't for Ted, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today. Yet. When I entered junior high school, at that point, I, I had been – Very, uh, I mean, you don't want to sound egocentric, but I was really successful as as a child prodigy on piano. Um, I won all these awards from the Hollywood Bowl. And and it's hard to, to, to pinpoint it, you know, different organizations that were involved with youth orchestras and things like that. So, I entered junior high school, and and Ted Lynn was the music instructor at at the school I went to. And at the time, I went to Birmingham, which is in Van Nuys, California. It was a six-year school. It was junior high and high school all put together. So when you had a teacher in the seventh grade, you were having those same teachers all the way through 12th grade. And it was an interesting school. It was an ex-military hospital, and it was what they used in a movie called The Men with Marlon Brando. About rehabbing Korean war veterans and our, our wood shop originally was the morgue and all kinds of like funny vibes in the school. But when I entered the seventh grade, I went in there and I said, look, I'm here. Your piano players arrived. And Ted looked at me and he said, there's like 50 kids play piano. He says, we need a string bass player. He said, would you consider playing string bass? And I said, show me what are you talking about? And he pulled a old K bass out. Danny Korchmar just walked in the room. i am I am a completely satisfied, spent person now. But um he pulled out a bass and he said, "Look, if you're willing to go for this, i'll I'm really happy to give you uh, some rudimentary lessons and get you started." And the minute I put a string bass in my hands, I fell in love with it, and piano fell by the wayside. And it was from then on, that was my focus. and 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 I really owe all that to Ted because he was uh, insistent, and he was also very patient as as an instructor. I mean, he got me, really comfortable but within a couple of months we did a dance band record in junior high school and i still got a copy of it at home with autumn leaves and all kinds of old standards on it fun times and i still i still speak with him at this point if you could put it into words what was it about the bass that you liked there's a lot of aspects of it i like i like the responsibility of the bass i like that you really are are pretty much the foundation of the house I mean, you can put all kinds of beautiful stucco work on a place and and beautiful roofing material, but if the foundation's not strong, it's not going to hold up. And I've always loved being in that position. I love the timber of it. Um, I love what it does to me viscerally when I play it. Just the feeling of those those notes, and 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 it's a great instrument to share with with the other guys. And it's only four strings or five like I'm using on this, so I don't have to have as much education as guys like Cooch do. and You know, they, they can. You know, but he, he looks so cute. It doesn't matter what he does.
1: You what, know, that dollar I promised, you know? <laughs> well, next week we're going to be hearing from Cooch himself, but we're speaking with Leland Sklar. Tell us about meeting James Taylor for the first time. well,
2: it was in a bathroom in a bowling alley. Oh wait, no, that wasn't James. That was Russ. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he was a very he was very affectionate and pliable, so we were we became immediate <laughs> friends. Now, James, I was in a band um, in the late '60s called Wolfgang. Now, Wolfgang was managed by Bill Graham, and Bill Graham's real name was Wolfgang, and and he ended up. uh we thought, what better way to suck up to our manager than to uh, name the band after him? This is where it gets very convoluted. There was a drummer in the band named Bugs Pemberton, an English drummer. One of Bugs's best friends was a, uh, a an engineer named John Fishback, who uh, had a studio called Crystal Recorders in Los Angeles. And he did all of the old Stevie Wonder records and all that. But one of John's closest friends was James. And he brought James. John came to one of our rehearsals one day to hang out with Bugs and he brought James with him. And this was before Fire and Rain had come out or anything. So it was kind of like a little precursor. And he hung out with us and he played us some of his songs. And we actually ended up copying Country Road, but doing it. We were much more of like a uh, heavy, like two guitar rock band uh, situation. We loved his songs and uh and we ended up doing that. And then I got this call uh from Peter Asher that through James that they were gonna be doing a gig at the Troubadour in Los Angeles and he wondered if I would be interested and asked if I remembered James and I mean it's you know, it's kinda like we were all just sort of dancing around each other. Nothing was really going on at that point. And uh turned out to be one of the greatest kind of uh, serendipitous moments of my life to have had this guy come by the rehearsal and meet him I was still in college at the time and after we did the troubadour they had like a month-long tour that they were offered and, uh, and this is when I hooked up because I had met Russ back in 68 when he was in a band called Things to Come in Los Angeles so suddenly I, I go okay oh, you know, I remember when we met you with things to come and then Cooch came on board and I would never met, I didn't know Cooch at all. It was all this kind of uh, interesting little dynamic of us all coming together. And we went out on that month long tour and I basically, at that point, things took off. I mean, fire and rain comes out next thing, you know, James is on the cover of Time magazine and all this stuff ha- starts happening. And I walked out of my fifth year of college and never went back, never graduated. <laughs> I had tons of units, but just kept changing majors. And never look back. And I mean, forty some years later, we're still out doing it. So it's pretty, pretty much a a gift. I feel like
1: I won the lottery huh. with with this career. You're here on the Troubadour reunion tour. What has this experience been like? It's profound. It's really
2: it's it's profound and deep for both the audience and the band. And that's a really special thing. I mean, I we get up on stage every night and. The songbook between James and Carol is so staggering, and like James always says on the show, he says, "You know, we, we were having trouble pairing this set down. I mean, we could easily go on stage and play for three days and not uh, repeat a song with these guys. I mean, it's it's absolutely staggering when you look at at Carol's body of work and James's is is unbelievable too. So." um But you're up there playing and you look out at the audience and people are crying. They're singing all the songs. I mean, it's a it's a very deep emotional experience because this is, for the most part, the whole fabric of the audience's life, too. And you can see people are connecting with different songs and uh, uh, different emotions that they've had. But it's really the same for us. I mean, I'm looking at my oldest friends on stage. And everybody, like I said at the beginning, is at the top of their game still. It's it's not, there's, it's you know, sometimes you see some of these acts that are coming back together after years, and it's kind of embarrassing, and you wish they hadn't done it. You'd rather just have the memory of how good they were. And this is as good as it's ever been. I mean, this is really staggering. Russ is playing. I I work with Russ all the time. I mean, we've never stopped working together. To be back with Cooch again is fabulous, because when he moved back east, we've, we didn't fall out of communication, but we fell out of, of spending time together because of just the geography of the situation. And I hadn't toured with Carol since we did the Thoroughbred tour back in the 70s. And James, I hadn't played with since 1990. So it's kind of a real homecoming on a lot of levels and a, and a really positive one. I love it. I'm having the time of my life. This was the last gig I ever do. I'm cool. Wow. Do you have a favorite memory from this tour thus far? You know, it's kind of like every day is is a thing. I think, you know, one of, one of the funniest moments was the stage we're using for the arenas is massive. I mean, I feel like I'm out on the U2 tour. It's a really big production. And we started the tour in Australia, New Zealand, and then Japan. All those gigs were Presidium-styled traditional concerts where we were just on a stage and had our gear set up and everything when we got back we went to boise idaho for production rehearsals for the u.s tour because carol lives in idaho and this was close to her we ended up in the taco bell arena in boise and we had that for a couple of weeks and the first time i walked in the arena and saw the stage i went holy crap look at this thing i mean it is huge conceptually, it's it's really amazing. And my only fear was that the the production was going to overshadow the music. Mm. And on a tour like this, the music would work if you were set up on a flatbed truck. I mean, it's like this doesn't need production. But the minute we got on the stage, we all just look at each other. This is cool (sighs) because the stage is in the round in the middle of the arenas. It turns for the entire show. So nobody doesn't have a visual in the audience with it. At times you're looking at people's backs and at times you're looking at their fronts. There's the whole thing has high def video screens that people up in the nosebleed section of these arenas can see perfectly. Cause there's, we've got like, one, two, three, four. I can't remember if we got four or six cameras going the whole time. So, I mean, there's like lots of stuff. The guy who's doing, the video aspect of it is really good as a director. So there's a lot of beautiful imagery going on. Then there's this entire other structure above the stage where there, where it's like a, it's probably LEDs or something in this. But it's all kinds of textures and video stuff going on on that. So it's a really comprehensive show, but it still feels intimate. And there's three kind of like petals, like of a flower coming off of the, the base of the stage. And it's set up like an old nightclub. And uh, those are like a VIP seat that people have paid a lot more money for. But all that money is going to charity. And they've already raised, I don't know, a million and a half bucks on this tour for, for whatever the, the designated charities are for this. I know that the, a lot of the money when we played Nashville went to help the uh, flood relief mm-hmm. in Nashville. So it's really kind of great because on the one hand, you look down and you go, oh, these, you know, people go, they're gouging people for this, but that none of that money's going in anybody's pockets except really important things. So, and it's an interesting thing to st- sit on stage and look down at people all around you like we're back in the troubadour, which is really the basis for the whole thing.
1: Our special guest is Leland Sklar. Do you have a favorite part in music? Do you prefer session work or performing or could you even pick?
2: I think if I was given it, if somebody said you can, you have to do one or the other, I would tour. I love recording. I mean, I, I feel really blessed. I've worked on probably at least 2,500 records in my career. So I mean, I've been doing this a long time and I, and I've been really blessed to still be, you know, one of the first call guys in town. But I kind of equate it to like if it, if you had the option to either be a mechanic on a, on a on a race car or the driver, I like doing both, but I would really love to be driving. And that's kind of what this is like to me. It's like the studio is a process that I really love, but there's nothing better than walking on stage and, and, and relating instantaneously to an audience and, and having that instant communication with them. So uh, but when it's in balance, it's it, that's when it's really nice when I when I've got. I leave the tour and I go back and immediately have session work to do and, and different projects. And, I, you know, I, I kind of enjoy both. I'd hate to I'd hate to have to make that call. As long as people are willing to call me, I'll, I'll show up I'm like gum on your shoe. What is it you like about music? Oh, God, there's so many things. I think one of the things I really enjoy the most about it is universality i I, might be a word i don't know i've been playing a lot of scrabble i'll have to go check that one but it's like i remember a a couple of years ago we were out because i've been working with phil collins for years and we went and we played in lebanon and then we went from lebanon from beirut to, to jerusalem and played in israel and i'll tell you you get up on stage and play music and there is no difference in people everybody's having a great time and two months after we left, the two countries were back at war. And I was looking at the television and seeing streets that I had been walking down that were all blown up now in Beirut. And you just go, there's something about music. You can go anywhere on this planet from Iceland to Tasmania and you get the same response. It, it, is, it is a commonality amongst people that, that's so deep and so profound and touches them in a way that transcends all the bullshit of politics and religion and all the crap that comes with all of that stuff. There's no baggage with music. And I think that's what I, what really appeals to me the most. I think it's a, it's a really special relationship you develop with people. They can't understand the lyrics yet. They sing the songs or whatever. You know, I mean it's like, it's, it's amazing. And the camaraderie, I, I find musicians to be a really unique breed of characters and, and to have, when I sit there and I look around you know the, the the group of friends that i have i couldn't ask for a better bunch of characters to spend my life with they're all kind of crazy and and goofy and fun and creative and brilliant
1: and um, it's a it's pretty magical i have two final questions first of all what is your all-time favorite meal
2: wow okay this was really one of the most disappointing experiences in my life there was either, there used to be a restaurant in San Francisco in Giardelli Square, which is a very touristy area. But I discovered a restaurant that was there called Paprikash Fono, and it was a Hungarian restaurant. And the first time I ate there, I almost had a heart attack. It was so good. It was unbelievably great. There used to be a chain of restaurants called the Magic Pan, and they were the kind of the first of the real kind of legit creperies that were on. Well, apparently the guy who owned Paprikash Fono had started that chain of restaurants and when it got huge he sold it for a lot of dough uh, to some big corporation and opened this place and I remember it was my birthday one year and I thought I'm gonna go to San Francisco and have dinner I mean how big so flew up from LA my wife and I flew up from LA and went up there and I was like so primed and we walked up there and they had closed no I've never been so disappointed in my life but uh, that used to be fabulous. And one of the best restaurants I, I ever ate at and two of the best meals I ever ate were at a restaurant called K Paul's in New Orleans. And, and Paul Prudhomme was kind of one of the real heavy hitters in the beginning of, of the Cajun cooking schools. I went in there and it's funky joint. You know, it's like a, almost family style. The they, tables are there. They'll put you at a table with other people. If you're a single and there's five people at a table, they'll stick you at a table for six And there's sawdust on the floor and all that. Food is just unbelievable. I kind of gear touring around the meals that we
1: get. (laughs) My final question for the legendary bassist Leland Sklar. This broadcast goes out all over the world. What do you want to say to all the folks who are listening right now? God,
2: I mean, if this could get deep and profound, but of course, I'll I'll save that for Cooch. God, you know it, you know it's sort of like I sit there and I turn on the news every day and there's so much horror in the world that's going on between fighting and, and, and oil issues and, and, and leaking oil. Try to enjoy as much of life as you can because we're just obstacles are thrown up every day in front of us. It's a hard thing to weed yourself through all this stuff. so just try to enjoy your life. We have such a finite amount of time. In this life, try to make the most of it and enjoy yourself. Find something you love like I'm lucky enough to have found and that, you know, to take your passion and you make it into your life. And I just wish everybody a lot of happiness. There's enough obstacles in the way. So just try to transcend that. And if you ever get a chance to see Russ or Cooch live too, go see him because it's see what real magic of musicianship is all about. And come see this tour. If it's we're, we're still out there. Come on. Come on, throw something at me. Eggs.
1: <laughs> well, Mr. Sklar, it's been a pleasure to do this interview. Thanks so much. It's an so absolute much.
2: pleasure for me, too. And uh, I can't tell you what a treat it is. It's made my trip to Atlanta great.
1: <laughs> oh, Thanks. ba 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 da beep ba dot boop da beep but i leap on knock at the piece. I walk on I it's a good But you a walk again. Goodbye.